The Pulitzer Prize for Music is traditionally thought of as somewhat of a lifetime achievement award, given out mostly to established composers late in their careers. That changed in 2013 when the prize was awarded to Caroline Shaw, at age 30, the youngest ever winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Music, for her work Partita for Eight Voices. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, we speak with Pulitzer Prize-winning musician and composer Caroline Shaw. Since winning the Pulitzer, Caroline continues to delight the music world. Her work draws on her expertise as a violinist, a vocalist, and a whole lot in between. This piece, called By and By, is a reworking of old folk songs. This one called Taxidermy was written to be played on flower pots. Caroline, I want to start by listening together to a portion of the piece you won the Pulitzer for, Partita for Eight Voices. Here it is, performed by your vocal group, Roomful of Teeth. Great name. <laughs> it is a great name. <laughs> Roomful of Teeth was founded um, by Brad Wells, a conductor who's at Williams College, who had has had for many, many years this idea of bringing together um, singers, maybe classically trained, to study vocal techniques from around the world and um, commission composers and develop new repertoire that really incorporates different colors um, of the voice and different ways of being expressive. I've heard it described in just incredible ways. Somebody wrote, Roomful of Teeth, makes sounds, some sweet, others alarming, that you probably haven't heard from a group of humans. <laughs> <laughs> We're definitely all human. It's only voices. It's eight people. Um, but you might hear the voice being used in an unusual way in a musical context. I'm going to play just kind of the beginning, which is just talking, up until where the music comes in. To the side. To the side. To the side. And around. Through the middle end. To the side. To the side. To the side. And around. Through the middle end. To the side. To the side. To the side. To the side. And around. And around and around. And around and around. To the side. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Through the midpoint. Of the line drawn from So right there, right off the top, you heard direction, wall drawing directions from the conceptual artist Saul Lewitt. So these, so um, take a midpoint from the line drawn from the left side, sort of sounds like directions for making a, a drawing or building a house. And then also to the side, to the left, Alman left, round and round and through, which are sort of American square dance directions. And there's an interesting parallel where you, you're using text and words to create something that is just otherworldly and, and the, you can words fail and that's where the music comes in and that sound is kind of a bright ah um, nothing particularly choral about it in one bar in about two seconds we go from everyone speaking in the way that you hear me right now going back into their sort of lowering your soft palate and then getting into more guttural sound and then you get into vocal fry uh, and then one person comes in on a note which is me, actually, and then another one, and then half a second later, the entire group is coming in. So this just ecstatic kind of essential basic melody. It's also this willingness not to have to so-called be beautiful as you're singing, mm -hmm. but to let your voice just sort of 
open and pour out all its humanness and yet do it yeah. expertly. <laughs> uh, yeah, very. It's if you could, you know, it's the way you're just yelling across to someone you haven't seen in 10 years. It's like so you saw them on the street. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. So great to see you. That kind of ecstasy in music is what that's the kind of sound that I was going for. <laughs> Boy, you did it. Tell me some other parts as we're listening along now. Sure. Let's play. Let's see what happens. A square divided horizontally and vertically into four equal parts. One gray, the wall one is yellow, bordered and divided into four equal parts. So there we have, we've taken that ecstatic, oh my goodness, it's so great to see you, and then softened it into kind of a choral sound, and mixing back in the little, the text, the drawing, the directions for making patterns, kind of woven in there. For one bar, it's like a little barbershop harmony moment. I heard that. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Yeah. I don't know, it's just so fun. And uh, we'll just play a little bit more. section where he goes mm -ba, mm -ba, mm -ba, mm -ba. just for four bars it's this um i like it, it has this ryth rhythmic energy and it feels like running um but it's actually a a gesture that is kind of inspired by um inuit throat singing from northern quebec we worked with a um a couple of really amazing singers one of whom is evie mark who work in this tradition I can give you a little demonstration of, of one. I'm not an expert, but... Please. Um, yeah, let's see. Oh, God. This is a kind called hume, and my my hume technique is, is a little louder. Some people have a more refined, quieter quality, but this one's pretty bright. And you'll hear the, the buzzy brightness of the fundamental note on the bottom. But then if you listen closely, you'll hear these overtones on top, which sounds like a little flute. And it's one voice. That's one kind of throat singing. And then I, the one I was referring to earlier, though, is Inuit throat singing. So it's, it uses the throat in a different way. I'll give you an example of that. Um, so you'll hear that there's a note, <laughs> which is just humming in the top, you know. That's my, I like this one because you can sort of hum. But then on the bottom, you can create these like a whole world's down below. Can you give me an example of that sound? I mean, it's so great to hear the breathy parts. You would think that's not allowed in vocal singing. The, you know, we're always hiding our breaths or trying mm -hmm. to treat our breaths in very special ways, and yet we're just letting it hang out there. Right. <laughs> the breath is, I think, it's one of the most expressive sounds that we have. You can hear when you're speaking to someone if they, oh, you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. We use our breath in these really important, nuanced ways. This is the beginning of the third movement called Courant, where we're using these this pattern and passing it back and forth among the four female singers. message you share with young people, among many others, is you can break out of the sort of same old mold of playing somebody else's stuff and really play with it. Play with music. Play with sounds. Yeah. Play with what's around. Don't, don't be afraid to think about what's around you and how it would filter through your own compositional voice. I want to play a little bit of the piece you composed for the Brooklyn Youth Chorus. 
It's called It's Motion Keeps. Sure. So It's Motion Keeps is a piece for the Brooklyn Youth Chorus, um, all treble voices and viola, solo viola. And the text is from an old shape note hymn. that you have come to do so beautifully composition and pieces with vocal groups when really for the first couple of decades of your life it was all violin. You started playing violin growing up in North Carolina at the age of two. Mm -hmm. My mom is a violin teacher for younger students, Suzuki students, and I had two older brothers who played violin, so it was always around. I don't really, I think I... I studied with Suzuki, which is the idea that one can learn to play music the way one speaks a language, which I love this idea. We all, as children, learn this incredibly complex thing, which is speaking, and I was I was learning violin at the same time I was learning to speak. It takes a long time for your violin playing to sound good. Were you, <laughs> were you happy during those young years, playing and practicing? Um. No, there's no sweet story about how I loved practicing. I, I did not. <laughs> um, I was like most kids. I did it because I, I had to. But eventually, you know, as I got older, once I had more facility, was able to I, play music with friends. Yeah, That was when I really started to fall in love with music. So when I got to play in my first string quartet, which is two violins, viola and cello, um, you're really hanging on to each other in that setting, in chamber music, depending on each other for the rhythm and tuning with each other. It's this wonderful, I think, metaphor for just um, getting along with people in life. Right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell, and I'm speaking with Pulitzer Prize-winning composer and musician Caroline Shaw. Caroline you went off to continue your violin training at Rice University. Did you write music then? When I really focused on violin, I wasn't writing music except for a tiny bit kind of in secret on my own. And I, I sang for two years in an a cappella group there. Mm. And I, I didn't even know what a cappella was. I just saw the sign, do you like to sing? Come audition. I was like, okay. <laughs> Can you beatbox? And then discover this whole... I don't beatbox. I, oh, actually, I did. I, I definitely did a little... Let's hear a little bit. like... Tick-a-tch, 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 for um, Madonna's Like a Prayer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Was it at Rice where you received the wonderful scholarship called a Watson? It was. I think that was also a surprise to people in the departments that I didn't know you wrote music. And the Watson Fellowship was, you can propose any idea of how to spend a year outside of your home country doing a project. And it means spending a lot of time by yourself. So I had this idea. I loved um, architecture and the way that people write about architecture, especially landscape architecture. And I had done this paper early on in college about um, the concept of taste and aesthetics in the Baroque era and how people were speaking about sort of music and musical taste in parallel with um, garden design and what a garden means and what this land, what a landscape means. And do you tame the environment and order it or do you sort of let it be what it is? And how do you tame music and can you tame noise and shape it into something different? And it's funny, taming nature or letting it be what it is, I think comes into the way I work with the voice and room full of teeth where you can let your voice come from this noisy part and then oh going from there into melody and into harmony oh. um and there's something incredibly organic about that that reminds me of of nature and and the way things grow and the way things come out of the earth and then have take this slender and 
um, billowing form. Did you have any other musical influences that sort of came out of this year of wandering? (laughs) (laughs) Well, oddly, during that year of wandering, I met a great musician in Brussels, and she played for me the famous album um, Mystery of the Bulgarian Voices, and I'll play a little bit for you right now. So one of the beautiful things about the way that these um, Bulgarian women's choirs sing is that they use a very bright and brassy sound that we sometimes call belting. And you hear this sound in sometimes in Broadway and in pop. Hmm. And I can demonstrate a little bit for you here. I'm going to step away from the mic because it's, it's loud. But... Um, So I'm using the air in a particularly concentrated way up at the top of my voice. The opposite of that would be, or just a different version in the same range, is your head voice, which is sort of a softer sound, maybe a little bit more air in it. But when you have 40 women singing with this bright belting quality, it's just so powerful and moving and rich. I love to use this in my music for Roomful of Teeth. And there's a section of Sarabande where the men built. So there we have the guy singing actually up in the same range that I just was. That's just kind of a women's pop range. And they're right up there with it. And it's this incredibly powerful sound. And isn't it amazing how life is? You on your one-year wandering journey, bumping into people, forming relationships, experiencing Bulgarian music bringing it back later and incorporating it into a Pulitzer Prize-winning piece. You know, that's (laughs) so great. (laughs) The world is a really rich and beautiful place if you sort of pay attention and there's all these things floating around. And I'm lucky that I I get to sometimes combine them into strange pieces of music. (laughs) I've heard so many people say what I obviously see with you here, how upbeat, kind, and optimistic you are. But I've also heard you say life is so incredibly beautiful and exhilarating, but also painfully, tragically lonely. Yeah, this is a something I think about with the concept of of joy. What is what is joy? And people sometimes say um, describe my music in that way. But there's a part of joy that's actually incredibly. It comes out of the deep loneliness and sort of the tragic tragedy of the human condition that we are essentially are all alone. And yet those moments of being able to be singing or making music with others or, or connecting with someone else are so powerful. That contrast between joy and sadness is essential for me in, in writing music. That's a hard thing to talk about. (laughs) I don't know how to answer that question. You had a lot of church experience, and I don't mean that you yourself are religious, but a lot of spiritual liturgy that you were part of that probably has influenced how you think of music. Mm -hmm. I think some of my most, I don't know how you say it, deepest spiritual kind of musical experiences have been when while singing or listening to music in church. And I often actually still go into churches and just experience the kind of, especially just, you know, large vaulted cathedral-like churches and listen to the space and listen to voices in that space. Um, I still find it really moving. You have such a strong, beautiful, and 
pure voice. Has anyone ever mentioned to you that it is akin to the voice of the great singer Judy Collins? Has anyone ever said that? No, but that's so kind. I love her. I I love her voice. I do like the kind of a voice that sounds as close to one's speaking voice. I Yes. Like if I actually was just talking to you and then I just started singing in the exact same voice as I was speaking. So I kind of, if you heard me, it just went into a melody and you're making melodies all the time. But there's this very natural place that we all have in our speaking voice. And if you just kind of channel it into into a melody, then it's really the most natural place to sing. And I think that folk singers really get that. What did you get after Yale from Ph.D. work at Princeton? What emerged from that? That was a wonderful time to sort of meet other composer colleagues that were working in different different ways. And um, and I think still a couple of my favorite pieces that I've done have came out of those first two years. And I can play actually one piece. It's called Entract. It's a string quartet. I went kind of a deep dive into the string quartet and what that meant, you know, what that meant for me as a younger player when I was 10 and, and what the music of Mozart and Haydn mean to me. that wonderful thing that we hear later you do with voices, bringing together in a slightly dissonant, unified tone, and then springing off into little rifts all on their own. Beautiful. Mm, Thank you. Yeah, I like sort of creating a little, little tiny bits of, as you say, dissonance and noise and something that is, um, you have this sense that something's not not quite right, and then it just on a dime turns back into the beautiful ordered world that it was, kind of shifting back and forth between those two things. The crazy thing is so we go from you producing music with the quartet to collaborating with Kanye West. <laughs> How was that? <laughs> it's it's ongoing actually. I'm about to go down to Washington D.C. to to do something with him again. It's it's a very it's such an interesting process. It feels a little bit like another Watson Fellowship in a way that I'm venturing into this other world of creativity and, and music making, but something that's very foreign to to what I know in the classical world. And he and his his whole creative team are are just very curious about what what is possible. There's incredible drama in simple things. And I think that's um, that's a concept that both of us are kind of interested in. How do you create immense, deep, meaningful drama in a very simple gesture? Of course, not all of his music is like that, but there are aspects of what I think his project is, which is trying to find actually something quite simple amid the chaos, which is his life sometimes. I want to play a little bit of the mix you did with this piece, Say you will. Now I'm awake, sleep as soon. the combination of you and Kanye West. I mean, how wonderful music is when creative souls get together from such disparate universes, right? <laughs> and also the challenge of trying to, to meet someone coming from different languages almost, you know, different 
different places and find and and trying to find that intersection and and moving that point of intersection around and seeing where that goes. Isn't it amazing what the Pulitzer experience has done for you? There have been so many experiences, but this has allowed many marvelous collaborations to happen. It really has, and I'm incredibly lucky, and I I want to make sure that I keep doing things that live up to um, the expectations, which now are high. That's the biggest change is that before there were no expectations yeah, yeah. For, for what I did. And and now there are some, and it really affects how someone sort of views my work or hears my music. But what I can do is just to keep working and being honest and being sincere and trying to always dig deeper and not being satisfied with anything less than that. You know, just keep playing and being yourself. You know, that's that's the joy of it, and it doesn't change yeah. with this. Yeah. Though I did see a spread on you in Vogue Italia. <laughs> they, they called you Pulitzer Girl. <laughs> I know. <It> was like... <laughs> You've been objectified by the clothing industry. <laughs> I know, right? Although they dressed me up in a, in a suit, so it was, I kind of liked that. It was like, okay. It was great. <laughs> well, Caroline Shaw, this has been fantastic. Thank you for sharing your insights and music with me on With Good Reason. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and, and I, I really thank you for doing what you do and for sharing these wonderful stories. Caroline Shaw is a New York-based musician and composer. She's a Grammy-winning singer in the vocal group Roomful of Teeth, and a violinist for the American Contemporary Music Ensemble. Her composition, Partita for Eight Voices, won the 2013 Pulitzer Prize for Music. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. 2016 was a tough year for fans of popular music. The sudden deaths of David Bowie and Prince were a devastating blow for fans of these artists and for music in general. Tim Anderson is a professor and chair of the Communication and Theater Arts Department at Old Dominion University. He's also a scholar of the popular music industry. He says the deaths of these two icons revealed a new trend in mourning. As our rock and roll heroes die, the collective grieving process has been altered and amplified by social media. Tim, fans are always crushed when they lose a favorite musician, but you have noticed the way we grieve is changing, that our collective grieving process has been altered and maybe amplified by social media? Yeah, I mean, it's, just remember that, that music's always something social, right? It's always a social event. If you listen to a musician, you're listening to another human being play. So there's something social there, and it fits perfectly within a new social media environment. So when David Bowie dies, instant memorialization online, instant. And they can share from YouTube. They can share from their own memories. They can take photos of, uh, of clips from old magazines if they kept them and put them online. And so we have this this rapid response team of everyday fans in a way that uh, you couldn't do 20, 30 years ago. How did it happen 30, 20 or 30 <laughs> years ago? There was mourning. I mean, if you remember when Kurt Cobain committed suicide, you would have memorial rites. You would actually have people get together and gather and memorialize themselves. John Lennon's death in uh, the early 80s. There was memorializations across the United States, and we've always mourned collectively, right? This is something we do to – this is part of who we are as humans. But online now, you actually see these extended networks, and you actually get a new visibility. Was there anything really interesting that caught your eye when we lost Prince or David Bowie? The immediacy. The immediacy the reaction. Particularly with Prince, I was actually in a meeting when that happened. I turned to a colleague, and he looked at me and nodded and goes, it's true. And uh, he knew because of Twitter, and I knew because of Facebook. And all I can think of is Purple Rain. This is a man who's openly emotional. He's talking about 
you know, men crying. It's not it's not a topic you you hear in in a lot of uh, hard rock. And here he is, you know, he's he's talking about his open emotions. He's melodramatic. I never meant to call you. We forget uh, not only is he one of the great rock guitarists, but the, the, the sense of melodrama and the sense of heightened emotion in, in that song is, is astounding. Why does the death of popular musicians seem to affect us even more than the deaths of other celebrities we admire? There's a lot of reasons for this. So, you know, when you listen to popular music, you're listening to a recording and it's an experiential good. And what I mean by that is it's something you need to experience. And it's, it's something you uh, experience repeatedly. They're very close to us, and they remind us of old times. They're literally time containers. It's a way of thinking about preserving time and, and traveling across time so that you remember where you were when you heard that first David Bowie record. You know, it really <laughs> fixes certain moments in our lives. Right. We're instantly brought back to what we were doing and who we were loving. Mm-hmm. When the music dies? Absolutely. And I'll, I'll tell you, when I mentioned that I was going to do this, one of our friends turned to us, her name's Angela, and she says, I know what you mean. When I when I hear certain records, I remember where I was in high school in front of my, my locker. And I go, yeah, there are times when I hear a record and I remember smells from a certain time or foods I was eating. That's very, very powerful. And then there are the powerful experiences we associate with those tracks. So the people we loved and then the people we lost. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and I think music also operates in a different way altogether. It affects a different part of our brain. Uh, my daughter's autistic. The only time she achieves fluidity is when she's singing with her favorite records. Like you just see the fluidity come out. There's something deep and it taps into us. We're deeply affected in ways I don't think we quite understand. So we really do mourn more deeply in some ways when popular musicians important to us die mm-hmm. than others. Yeah, and, and one other thing about popular music, and this is really important, most of us get into popular music in our adolescence. And this is when we discover our own identity. That's when we discover our identity. So it's about losing a moment of discovery as much as anything else. Like, So when you go back and you remember how you dressed when you heard that first Prince song or how you first learned how to move like Michael Jackson – you're mourning a little bit of a death of yourself. Was there also something these three men had, Bowie, Prince, Jackson, that in particular caused a heightened sense of loss for many people? I think they were all three very marginal. And by, by marginal, I mean on the margins of race, on the margins of, of, uh, of society. And all three of them are, are uh, somewhat feminine men. They indulged uh, fashion, dance. They both indulged a sense of uh, sexuality that was fluid. I think that they were uh, extremely uh, important for people who were on the margins. Huh. So people related to that and thought, this is, this is an extension of me. That's me. That's me. There's a great scene in Velvet Goldmine where a character is, is watching television with a, if you've seen the movie, uh, it's clearly about David Bowie. And the character realizes he's gay or queer, sees this David Bowie character and yells at the television, that's me, that's me. So I think that happened to a lot of people. How did you learn that David Bowie had died? You're a fan of Bowie's, right? Well, we were talking about Prince, Michael Jackson, and David Bowie. I loved all three, but Bowie was, uh, I grew up sort of a punk, right? Punk rock and uh, new wave, and there was a deeper connection there. Uh, my wife came upstairs, and she was crying. I said, what's what's wrong? She goes, David Bowie died. It's horrible. Uh, the My Bowie was not the Bowie of a, a lot of friends. They uh, they liked the 70s boy, but the Bowie that I first was introduced to was when I was like 15, 14, it was Let's Dance. And I think Let's Dance, you know, for me is a, as somebody who's a straight white male who was not encouraged to dance, I thought it was kind of a fun song. And, and there he is moving and he's dancing in a way that's, that's straight white men you just never see dance. So I'm really interested in that. to the 
I, I love that song. I love, uh, you know, I love the playfulness of it. Uh, I love the fact that it was essentially, uh, you know, a dance, a disco record. You know, I mean, it really is. It's not disco in the sense of uh, style, but it's a danceable record. Are there other artists alive today that you think will have this power over us? This is a tough one, and, and I think that there are. But um, one of the things about Bowie, Michael Jackson, and Prince is that they came during a time of mass media. And what I mean by that is everybody had to experience music in, in through a mass way, through the radio, through the television, that was very limited in terms of dials and channels. There's increased nicheification right now, and that's something all media people have looked at. You know, I can be in the room and we'll have the television on, but we'll all be looking at 15 different screens and have our headphones on and listening to different things. And I'm not so certain that we will have that same kind of mass mourning, but there'll be there'll definitely be memorializations because music means something to people, whether it's mass or micro or niche. So it's interesting. You're saying two different things. One thing is the social media is binding us together so we can grieve as one mm-hmm. and grieve instantly and create memorials. And it's also dividing us. Well, I mean, all three of those musicians who died all came through a period of, of mass media. They're all essentially 20th century figures. Uh, we've yet to see our first 21st century media phenomenon die that I that I can think of off the top of my head. When that happens, it'll be interesting to see how that changes because like a YouTube phenom. We do have musicians like Adele. We do have musicians like Taylor Swift. Don't get me wrong. But that phenomenon's not the same in the sense of even scale. It's just not. Michael Jackson, to put it in perspective, when Thriller came out, one author put it perfectly. He said, that thing did not sell like a record. It sold like a household good, right? Everybody had that. Everybody had to acknowledge Thriller. I think, you know, I think when we talk about Thriller, I, I think that's like one of the most amazing records of the 20th century. Um, if you listen to it, it's got, you know, a hard rock piece and, and something like Beat It. It's got a, a great dance song and Billie Jean. But the one that I really always think about is the one that makes me laugh is uh, That Girl Is Mine. You know, to hear McCartney and Jackson go back and forth over a girl in these very high falsettos, it, you know, it's just hilarious. Girl is mine. going to fight about this, okay? Oh, I think I told you. I'm a lover, not a fighter. Uh, I've heard it all before, Michael. She told me that I'm her forever lover, you know, don't you remember? I mean, that's that to me is a funny song. It's not one that anyone remembers, <laughs> but I, I get a kick out of it. I, I just do. And I, I love the, the sort of lighter songs in that record that often people forget. You've studied what makes certain music popular. Is there a kind of formula for it? No, I mean, there's no formula for, for what. If there was a formula, I'd have it and I'd be making lots of money. But I have to admit, there uh-huh. have been certain songs that I've listened to yeah. that I knew from nothing and instantly thought, ah, oh, yes. Yeah, no, I think we've all had that where like a, a song comes on the radio and you go immediately, oh, that's going to be a hit. You know, that's just massive. And I don't know what that is. And the thing is, if, if that was the case, every artist would do that over and over again. So we are hearing a new song curated for us and offered mm-hmm. through the radio. Mm-hmm. They're mostly hearing new songs through what? Uh, well, I mean, YouTube is the biggest. I mean, it's the largest streamer in the world. When I talk to my students, they will admit that they listen to some radio. They listen to Spotify. They listen to Pandora. They have their Apple Music. The, the issue is, is there a grand unifying narrative, right? Is there something that brings them together, like a radio station, a television station, an American bandstand? Maybe not. But sharing on Facebook may be their grand narrative of how they're experiencing the world through their friends. The great thing about Spotify, the great thing about something like Pandora and Apple Music is it, it's made the catalog available to us. And the bad thing is that it's made everything available to us. So, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's an economy of scarcity, right, versus an economy. There's no scarcity anymore. It's just different. It really is a different experience. I don't get upset about it. I just don't. Well, Tim Anderson, thank you for talking with me today on With Good Reason. 
Oh, thank you. It's a real pleasure. Tim Anderson is professor and chairman of the Communication and Theater Arts Department at Old Dominion University. Coming up next, musicians mentoring musicians. My next guest is a musician who's performed with nearly 100 bands over the past 30 years, ranging from rock to jazz to classical. These days, Mark Snyder brings his music students along to perform and record with him. Mark Snyder is a music professor at the University of Mary Washington. He's been named a quarter finalist for the 2017 Grammy Educator Award, and he credits his student successes for his own. Mark, let's play something from one of your students that illustrates just how far they've gone in this industry, working in this collaborative way with you. Okay. I would like, uh, I'd like to play a, a song called Formaldehyde that uh, Becky Brown wrote. You know, Becky plays harp on and she sings on and uh, has been performed in Europe and has been played on radio stations around the country. So what's really cool about this is that this was Becky's first professional recording. And uh, so now she just started this fall, and she's now the music technology specialist at University of Richmond. That is a really nice piece. Give me another example of a piece by one of your students. Right now, I have a group of composers that are writing for each other, a small ensemble. Violin, percussion, piano, guitar, and bass. And it's really neat to see these pieces evolve because, you know, they're bringing them into me every week for lessons and we're talking about what they can do. Uh, And then Wednesday night, they all have jazz band rehearsal together. That way they get together and start just fleshing some of those out. And when you're first starting out, you really don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. And that way they get to find out really quickly because they get to fail and experience, oh, well, I guess I really shouldn't have done that by themselves. How does a piece sometimes fail? How do you critique a music piece? Well, I mean, that's a really good question. I think first you really need to find out the composer's intent. Like, what are they trying to do? What are they trying to say? And I think for almost all of us universally is, how do I help this student find their voice? How do I help them uh, connect to what it is that they had planned to connect to, and also be open to those surprises that uh, surface when you're writing a piece. You know, sometimes you don't know where you're going until you get there. Uh, a good friend of mine, Oscar Bettison, who teaches at Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore, um, he gave a master class to my students once. And one of the, the really interesting things he said was, you know, sometimes I'm 10 minutes into a piece before the first notes of the piece actually get written. Because it's almost like everything I wrote before was sort of um, leading up to, okay, now I'm ready to write this piece. So it was almost like that was the preparation. This other musical material had to get out of the way before the good stuff appeared. I remember an editor in a newsroom once said, it's usually the third sentence you write that's your best lead. You know, yeah. it's akin to that. It really is. I mean, it's it, it's funny how, like, all the arts sort of interconnect and, and how at least... They can seem so different, but at the same time, process can be so similar. Did you start your musical career on a tuba? Kind of, sort of. I started my musical career playing the trombone because my father loved Chicago, and I loved my father, and I wanted to play trombone. Oh, he loved the band Chicago. Yeah, 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 the band Chicago. Everybody did. Well, he actually even loved it once they got really sappy in the 80s, too. But he really originally liked them for the politics and for the brass section. So that made me want to play trombone. Uh, Then 
the, my standmate decided to empty his um, spit valve into the girl's hair in front of us. I got blamed for it. And uh, so, so Mrs. Mandudis moved me to tuba. Oh, and yeah. what did you think of tuba? It's just this big, beautiful, bass-sustaining instrument. And when you process it like I do, I mean, I make it sound like a pipe organ. So, I mean, it's just this huge sound that you can have. And it's just, uh, it's, it's, since it's attached to your body in that way, your head is resonating, your whole chest cavity is resonating, it's on your lap, and so your lap is just, everything is just vibrating. Uh, to me, all instruments are cool in their own ways, but nothing's going to take how cool it is to play a tuba away. It just feels so good. Will you play a tuba stretch for me to give me just a feel for that? Sure. So this is Malmo. And Malmo, I wrote about a friend of mine that is a dock worker in Sweden who decided to stop being a dock worker in Sweden for a while to become an astronaut. And then he decided it was too much trouble, so he went back to being a dock worker in Sweden. This is one of the first pieces I wrote that sort of interacts with... uh, granular synthesis. So when I play a note, you'll hear it, but then it'll just sort of blossom and start to create these clouds. And so you can sort of hear it sort of going up, right? The harmonic series and just sort of opening up and getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and then sort of washing away like how, you know, how the tide goes back into the ocean. After high school, you really weren't expecting to go directly to college? No, I was not expecting to go there at all. Were you going to take a gap year? No, there was no gap year. I was just going to be a rock drummer. That's <laughs> I, No, I had no intention of going to college until a good friend of mine said, hey, man, come on down to Virginia Commonwealth University. And uh, so I did. And so on the floor below him, there's nothing but beautiful women. And then the floor <laughs> above him, there was nothing but beautiful women. And I was like... I really like this. This is, this is, I, you know, I was 18. I was very excited. And so I went home and I told my dad, I was like, hey, you know, I'm going to go to college. This is great. And then I think the report cards for that six weeks had even come out and they were just abysmal. And so the next six weeks I come back and they're all A's. And my father's like holding his chest, like emotional, like what, what? And of course I was like, come on, dad, don't you know you need good grades to go to college? He was livid that I would just say that to him. He's just like, all these parent-teacher conferences, I'm going to kill you. Why would you do this to me? And so that's what made, you know, I auditioned. I got a scholarship. I got in. And uh, and then your first job out of college, you were hired by Elvis's bass player. Can that be? yeah. Norbert Putnam, uh, he was Elvis's bass player during the RCA years. Norbert brought me down to my first uh, tenure track job uh, as a professor at Delta State University in Cleveland, Mississippi, and he was able to get a a lot of money raised, the majority of it from Fred Carl of Viking Range, and turned the university's gymnasium into three really impressive recording studios. We just have enough time to go out on a piece of yours, Los Wimbler. Los Wimbler is a Peruvian chicha band. They were probably one of the biggest bands in that area in the the late 60s, early 70s. And I have a good friend uh, that owns Barbess Records uh, in Brooklyn uh, who brought them here. They performed at the Smithsonian Folklife Festival in D.C., and then he brought them to Mary Washington, where my students and I recorded their record. It's the first record they made in, I don't know, maybe 20 years, 30 years. And uh, it was an amazing experience. They didn't speak English. We didn't speak Spanish. And uh, it was magical. I think it may be one of my favorite records I've made, just because it incorporates, you know, friends from New York, students, myself, and... Uh, you know, the power of music to, I know it sounds sort of cliche, but the power of music to sort of overcome even language differences. Mark 
Snyder is a Grammy-nominated professor of music at the University of Mary Washington. You can hear more of his music at MarkSnyder.com. Next week on With Good Reason, a look back at the president's first year in office. This program has been made possible in part by a major grant from the 2016 Pulitzer Prize Centennial Campfires Initiative. For their generous support for the Campfires Initiative, we thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation of New York, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Pulitzer Prize Board, and Columbia University. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. Support also comes from the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Allison Quantz is our senior producer. Elliot Majerzyk is our producer. John Last and Kelly Libby are our associate producers. Jeannie Palin handles listener services, and our intern is Georgiana Reed. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thank you for listening, and have a wonderful new year.